So uh, this coming spring, Christine and I will be celebrating 10 years of marriage. <laughs> okay, awesome. Thank you for that. Uh, what you may not know is that uh, Christina, the first, I don't know, month or two we were dating, I don't remember this, just like I don't re- remember meeting her for the first time, and so she has this crazy story that I was somehow rude and weird. I don't, I also don't remember this conversation, so I don't know what this says about me, or maybe she's making up a bunch of stuff. Uh, but we were dating for about a month or two, and she apparently said that I told her that, that, that she was the one, right? And she's like, why are you telling me this? Like, I barely know you. That's kind of weird. I don't remember this uh, happening, but clearly... Um, what I foretold actually happened. However, it didn't happen the way that you would expect. If you're part of New City, you've heard me share our story from time to time that she uh, broke up with me twice. Uh, in fact, we started dating in the fall of our freshman year. That summer, she dumped me, got back together the fall of our sophomore year. That summer, the next summer, she dumped me again. We got back together the fall of our junior year, and I married her at the beginning of summer between her junior and senior year of college, so she could not dump me. And so there we go. Our our first uh, summer together, we were married because she always broke up with me in the summer. And so I say all that to say, I fulfilled my promise to Christina. It may have not happened in the order or the way that you would have expected or I would have expected, but it happened nonetheless, okay? And I share that story because as we continue our time in the book of Exodus this morning, we're going to see that God is faithful to his promises, he is going to do what he says he's going to do. However, he often doesn't do, he fulfill his promises in the way that we assume that he will. And it's actually our assumptions of that, that God promises something that therefore he must do it in the way that we expect that can get us into trouble. It can cause us discouragement in our lives. And so that's what we're going to see this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Exodus chapter 5 or a smartphone, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can uh, use one of the black ones in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, you can take one of those home. It is our gift to you. We are in the book of Exodus. Um, we have seen so far that the Israelites have been mistreated. They've been enslaved. There's been a, a, a legalized genocide against them that God calls Moses. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, is not who you would expect God to, to call. He was in exile. He's old at this point. He kind of threw away all of his power and prestige. He's wanting to be killed by the Egyptians and rejected by the Israelites. So the last two weeks, we've seen that God uh, approached Moses or confronted Moses with the story of the burning bush. And Moses is like, oh, no, you shouldn't use me. I, I'm, not, I'm not the one that's up for this task. And God says, no, I'm going to use you because it's not about Moses. It's about God being with Moses. He gives Moses a series of three signs of turning a, a staff into a snake, of, of, of some infectious skin disease that he heals, and then taking some of the Nile and turning it into blood. He says, I want to give you these signs. Go to the Israelite leaders to demonstrate that I have actually come and confronted you and told you that this is going to happen so that they will trust you. And then you will go confront Pharaoh to let your people go. And so that's where we were. Last week, we ended talking about circumcision. So that was fun. Uh, and we learned that in God's covenant, there is grace and forgiveness and mercy. And out God's, outside of God's covenant, there is judgment and death ultimately being cut off from God. And so now the story continues. God in his providence has already told Aaron, Moses' brother, to meet Moses out into the wilderness. And so Aaron is on his way to meet Moses after God tells Moses, here's what I want you to do. And so we'll pick up the story actually at the end of chapter 4. So actually in chapter 4, verse 27 is where we're going to pick up this morning. And, And here's what it says. It says, Now the Lord had said to Aaron, Go and meet Moses in the wilderness. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. 
Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and about all the signs he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and assembled all the elders of the Israelites. Aaron repeated everything the Lord had said to Moses, and and Moses performed the signs before the people. The people believed, and when they had heard that the Lord had paid attention to them and that he had seen their misery, they knelt low and worshipped. Right? And so, again, in God's providence, Aaron was already on the way to meet Moses when Moses was saying, no, I can't do this. And so God says, I'm going to send Aaron to help you. Um, as a side note, I think it's interesting to know that Aaron is likely an Israelite elder or leader himself at this point. That's really the only way that you can explain why he would be allowed to leave Egypt, uh, because he must have had some leadership ability in Israel that gave him some flexibility, because, again, the Israelites were enslaved. And so he's allowed to go. He meets uh, Moses in the, the, uh, the wilderness, and... This isn't just like God saying, Moses, Aaron's going to help you because you need help. Uh, it's probably Aaron's credibility that even gave Moses an audience with the Israelite elders to begin with because Aaron, again, is likely one of the key leaders of, of, of Israel as well. And so Aaron allows Moses to have this meeting with the Israelites. Aaron's the one who does most of the talking, again, probably because they didn't want to know Moses or want to hear from Moses. And so Aaron does the talking, and then Moses performs the signs. And so the leaders experience and are rejoicing and worshiping because what they had so longed for to happen has finally happened. And I don't know if you've ever had a situation in your life where you were praying for something or you were hoping for something and you were just wanting something to happen so bad and you weren't sure it was going to happen. And then you received the news that it was actually going to happen. You were probably pretty excited, right? So for me, for example, I remember when I was applying to colleges, I wanted to go to UNC Wilmington. And so I initially was on the wait list. So I initially didn't get in. I guess it's kind of like see how many people they accepted actually said they're going to go there. And so I was kind of bummed about that. Um, and then eventually I went to music as a went to college as a music major initially because I didn't know what I wanted to do and play the piano growing up. And so I auditioned for the music program and I got in at UNCW. But that doesn't necessarily guarantee you're going to get accepted. But it helps because it's like oh this person actually has a reason to go here, you know. And so I audition. I get into the music program and then a couple of weeks later I come home from school one day, I opened the mailbox, and I saw a big envelope from UNC Wilmington. Now, I don't know how they do it nowadays when you're accepted. I think they just send you an email. But when I was going to college, if you got a big envelope, typically it was good news. The first uh, letter I received from Wilmington was just a normal standard envelope, which is kind of like, oh, this stinks for you. So I'm like, oh, is this it? Like, am I going to get it? So I go inside, put the mail on the kitchen counter. My mom was in the living room. I think she was watching TV. And I open up the big envelope, and I just, like, scan to the bottom. It says, congratulations, you are accepted into UNCW or something to that effect. And so I'm reading this, and I immediately put the mail down, and I'm like, yes, 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 yes. And meanwhile, my mom's like, what's happening? She's like, did somebody die? What's going on here? And I was super excited because what I had longed for had come to fruition. I'm excited. My mom's having a heart attack, and all is good. Right, all is good. Again, it's not the way I probably would have planned getting into UNCW, but it happened, right? And so to some degree, this is what the Israelite leaders are facing, right? They've been enslaved. They've had brutality against them for generations, as long as all of the people that are currently alive have been alive. They cry out to God, and God's going to deliver them. This is really exciting. The only problem is things are about to get much worse, right? They think they're going to be delivered. They probably assume how this is going to play out, and it's not going to play out how they think. And so here's what it says next in chapter 5, verse 1. Later, Moses and Aaron went in and said to Pharaoh, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh responded, who is the Lord that I should obey him? This is going to be a common theme throughout the book of Exodus. Pharaoh is saying, who is this God of the Israelites? Why would I listen to him? So he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. They answered, uh, they answered, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go on a three-day trip into the wilderness so that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, or else he might strike us with a plague or sword. The king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why are you causing the people to neglect their work? Get to your labor. Pharaoh also said, look, the people of the land are so numerous, and you would stop them from their labor. So Moses and Aaron, right, they go and they meet with Pharaoh. Uh, they ask to go on a three-day trip, which as we've talked about, they, that would have been understood as we want to go on, uh, on a trip, if you will, for an undisclosed amount of time. We're not sure how long this is going to take. Uh, Pharaoh says, no, again, why would I listen to you? Why would I listen to your God, especially since you guys are enslaved and you're numerous and you provide a lot of labor for us? I'm not going to let you go. Now, we shouldn't be surprised by this. It's obviously pretty clear that Pharaoh would say no. What's interesting here um, is that when Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh the first time, which is what they're doing here, the first thing they say to Pharaoh is actually not what God commanded Moses to say initially, right? They say in chapter 5, verse 1, let my people go so that they may hold a festival for me in the wilderness, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, that's not what God tells Moses to say. He tells Moses to say, to let the people go so that they may offer sacrifices for me. Now, eventually he does say sacrifice, and I'm sure this exchange lasted longer than just the few uh, sentences that we have here. But their initial question or their initial request from Pharaoh is not what God told them to say. Now, if they had been more forthright and more honest up front that the point of this festival was to include sacrifices, I don't know that Pharaoh would have changed his mind or would have reacted differently. But regardless, they don't do what God asked them to do. And I think if we're honest, this, is, this can make disappointment towards God or disappointment in our life worse when we think we are being obedient to what God is asking us to do, and then we get mad at God even though we haven't fully obeyed uh, what he's requested or asked us to do, and we think God didn't follow through when in fact we didn't do what he asked. In other words, you could put it this way, that half-hearted obedience isn't obedience, Right? So many times we can get upset with God because we've done 50% or 75% of what God asks us to do. And then we assume that we've done our part, so God should do his part. And then we get upset with God when at the end of the day, we actually haven't been obedient to what he's called us to do. I liken this to Roman, who's our two-year-old, who's awesome, by the way. And I have to point that out because someone last week said, Dylan, every time you tell a story about Roman, you always say he's awesome. Well, he is awesome, okay? So let me just preface that. Roman's awesome. Now, he's two, and so about a couple months ago, he stopped taking a nap, and so we had to train him uh, to do quiet time, which is basically you have to go to your room and play by yourself for a while so that mom or whoever can have a break and do work and, like, just be done with you for, for about an hour, okay? And so uh, as he's learning to do quiet time, uh, at, the end of the, at the end of quiet time, if he did well, a.k.a. didn't interrupt a bunch of times, 
times, didn't ask us to go into his room a bunch of times. Like he actually stayed by himself, played by himself, and wasn't a disruptor at any in, in really any real sense. He would get a piece of M and a piece of candy or an M and M. He would get something if he did quiet time well to reward him. So he he would be trained to do quiet time. The problem was, as he was learning, sometimes he would do a great job, and other days he wouldn't do that very good of a job, and so the days he didn't do well, he would not get an M&M or a piece of candy, and he would get upset. Why? Because he assumed, well, if I do quiet time, that automatically means that I get a piece of candy. But that's not the deal. You have to do quiet time well. Right? Half-hearted obedience isn't obedience. For us, again, sometimes we, we somewhat ask or somewhat are faithful to what God is asking us to do or what God is leading us to do, but we're not as faithful as we know we could be. And then we get upset with God when the problem isn't what God, God or what he's asked us to do. The problem is us because half-hearted obedience isn't obedience, and that's what Moses and Aaron find themselves right here. And so again, Pharaoh responds by saying no. In verse 6, he continues. Uh, after he tells them no, it says this. That day, Pharaoh commanded the overseers of the people, as well as their foremen, uh, don't continue to supply the people with straw for making bricks as before. They must go and gather straw for themselves, but require the same quota of bricks for them as they were making before. Do not reduce it. For they are slackers. This is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. <clears throat> Impose heavier work on them, then they will be occupied with it and will not pay attention to deceptive words. So Pharaoh responds by increasing their workload. He's like, well, if you think you're going to leave and you have all this time to imagine what this will look like, I'm going to make you work harder. Are you want to leave? Good luck with that. Now you have more to do. And again, Pharaoh here has no care for the God of the Hebrews. He doesn't know who this God is. Um, he himself would have been viewed as some sort of a deity. So he's like, I'm not going to do what you want to do. We're going to do what I want to do. And so to him, the words of Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, were lies. They were lies to be ignored, not something to be obeyed or to be accepted, which, by the way, is the standard view for those who don't know or don't follow God even today. Right? God's words for many people are simply lies that keep us from being all that we want to be, from pursuing all of our passion. We see God's words as restrictive, as holding us back, as perhaps outdated. We see all these things as to why we should not obey God and why we should do our own thing. Right? God, in many cases, restricts us from living life on our own Terms. The problem is we often think that I either believe in God or I believe in nothing, and that's not how it works. In reality, here's how it works, that we all believe in something. It's just a matter of what we believe in. Even in Pharaoh here, he's not saying, I just re reject the God of the Hebrews and I'm going to do my own thing. What does he believe? He believes in the Egyptian gods. He believes in himself. We, again, we often think it's God or nothing. The reality is you believe in the story of God or you believe in the story of yourself. But we all have beliefs that drive us to certain actions and drive us to certain things. It's incorrect to say, well, I reject God and therefore I do whatever I want to do. No, if we reject God, we believe in ourself and our desires and what we want to accomplish and what we want to pursue. We all believe in something. And so we have to understand that. The best thing we can do then is to clarify what it is we're actually believing in or what it is we are actually 
pursuing, right? The Egyptians say, no, I'm not going to believe in, the, in Yahweh, the God of the Israelites. I'm going to believe in my own thing. And the question for us today is the same. Are we going to follow God and who he is and, and what he's asked us to do? Or are we going to follow our, our, our desires or our ideologies or our own things? We all believe in something. And so we have to just name what it actually is. At least Pharaoh here is being honest by saying, no, I have my own beliefs. I'm not going to follow the God of the Israel." Of the Israelites. And so here's what happens next, verse 10. It says, So the overseers, which would have been the Egyptians, and the foremen, which would have been the kind of some of the, 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 they would have been Israelites who were leading kind of the groups of Israelite slaves. So the overseers and the foremen of the people went out and said to them, This is what Pharaoh says I am not giving you straw. Go get the straw yourselves uh, wherever you can find it, but there will be no reduction at all in your workload. So the people scattered throughout the land of Egypt to to gather stubble for straw. The overseers insisted, finish your assigned work each day, just as you did when the straw was provided. Then the Israelite foremen, whom Pharaoh's slave drivers had set over the people, were beaten and asked, why haven't you finished making your prescribed number of bricks yesterday or today as you did before? Right, so long story short, the Israelites, again, they're given an impossible task. Their workload has to stay the same, and yet they're not provided straw uh, to, to gather to help, them, uh, to help them make the bricks. And so the problem is they have no straw, and they have to use stubble, which, by the way, was essentially the r- short remaining stalks um, from the various crops that would have already been harvested, which basically means they were more they were more work to gather, and they were not nearly as good for brick making as normal straw was. And so the Israelite foremen are beaten because they are not able to keep up to the, with the workload. Right. So what we see happening here is that this is going the exact opposite as how you would have expected. Right. God promises deliverance, and so they probably like us in our own life are connecting the dots about what that the path of deliverance is supposed to look like, but then it doesn't happen the way that they expect, and they get frustrated and upset, as all of us would. And so verse 15, here's what happens next. So the Israelite foreman went in and cried for help to Pharaoh. Why are you treating your servants this way? No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. Look, your servants are being beaten. But it is your own people who are at fault. But he said, this is Pharaoh speaking, you are slackers, slackers. This is why you are saying, let us go sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. No straw will be given to you, but you must produce the same quantity of bricks. The Israelite foremen saw that they were in trouble when they were told, you cannot reduce your daily quota of bricks. When they left Pharaoh, they confronted Moses and Aaron who stood waiting to meet them. May the Lord take note of you and judge, they say to them, because you have made us reek to Pharaoh and his officials, putting a sword in their hand to kill us. So now we have, again, the foreman going to meet Pharaoh. Why uh, Moses and Aaron didn't make a second appeal, it's likely that they weren't allowed another audience with the Pharaoh at this time. And so the foreman go and ask Pharaoh why he's doing this. And they receive the same response that you think you're going to leave You're going to have more work to do. And so they leave the meeting with Pharaoh. They're understandably furious and upset with Moses and Aaron for not only promising deliverance and then making things worse, but the fact that things are worse. They would have wished that you never had come back 
to begin with, right? Things look a long way off than they looked at the, be- at the end of Exodus 4 when they initially de- uh, knelt and worshipped that God was going to deliver them, right? God promised deliverance, and things have actually gotten even more miserable than before the Moses and Aaron had returned. And I think if we're honest, this is, again, how often things happen and play out in our own life, that we expect God's promises to lead to great things, right? We might, God might be leading us to something, or we see in Scripture that if we do a certain thing, that this is how God will respond to us. And so we get frustrated when God doesn't do things in the order that we assume He will. Right? Oftentimes, we have a promise of God, and so we, we kind of fill in the dots, if you will, of what that's going to look like from point A to point B. And we assume oftentimes it's kind of, kind of go like this, some ups and downs, but generally getting to God's promise is going to be awesome. When in fact, reality is sometimes it goes down a lot before it goes back up. And then sometimes we don't even see the promise being fulfilled in the way that we think it should be fulfilled, right? We assume, therefore, that sometimes God breaks his promise when it's not his promise that has been broken. It's our assumption of what the journey to the promise will look like that has been broken. And as God never promised it was going to be that way. It's our assumptions. And so again, we get frustrated with God for God not doing something that he never actually said he was going to do, right? And, and what has God promised us? A well-known passage of scripture in John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus is talking to his disciples and then he tells them this. He says, I have told you these things, basically that he is the Messiah, that he will return to redeem and judge the world, and that there's grace and forgiveness found in him. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. He's saying in your suffering, in your disappointments, in your discouragements, you can still have peace knowing that I love you, that I care for you, and that I am in control. And so we see this all throughout Scripture, that really faithful people, really faithful people who do great things from God suffer really big, right? Let me give you just two examples. John the Baptist. John the Baptist uh, was the forerunner for Jesus. He was six months older than Jesus. He was Jesus' cousin, He was a prophet, and he comes onto the scene basically saying that the Messiah is here. And so he's baptizing people, and at some point, uh, Jesus arrives. John the Baptist actually baptizes Jesus to start Jesus' public ministry. And then a bunch of John's followers start following Jesus, and the religious leaders like, John, are you upset about this? And he says in John chapter 3, no, uh, he must increase, talking about Jesus, and I must decrease. That's the point of all of this, is for people to see and to meet Jesus. And so he's the forerunner of Jesus. He's super faithful. And then ultimately, he gets imprisoned by the Roman governor in Jerusalem for essentially calling out this Roman governor for divorcing his wife unlawfully and sleeping with somebody else's wife. And so the governor doesn't like that. He throws him in prison, and which is a really strange way for someone who has paved the way for the Lord to go. I'm sure he did not assume that him telling people about the Messiah, baptizing the Messiah, uh, would end in him being thrown in prison, right? That's not what he probably would have expected. In fact, Jesus himself says that there is no one greater, no man greater that has ever existed than John the Baptist, okay? So I'm not saying you're not awesome like Roman is. I'm not saying that you're not awesome, but you're not John the Baptist, right? I'm not John the Baptist. And so he's in prison, likely awaiting a death sentence, and he writes to Jesus. He writes to Jesus because he's confused that this has not played out the way that he would have thought. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. He's in prison. It says, Now when John heard in prison what the Christ was doing, he sent a message through his disciples. 
and asked him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Are you really who we thought you were? Because this isn't playing out the way that I thought that it would. Jesus replied to them, go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah about the Messiah, about the promises that the Messiah or the anointed one would fulfill, which by the way, Jesus fulfills these. He does a lot of these things. And so he tells John all of this. What's significant is that he leaves off one repeated uh, promise in Isaiah that is in multiple places in Isaiah that John, John the Baptist would have expected that he would have included, but he didn't. He did not include the promise that the prisoners will be set free. Right? This is a promise that's repeated throughout Isaiah. What is he telling to John? He's basically saying that I am the one, right? Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah and you will die in prison. And in fact, that's what's going to happen, right? You're like John the Baptist. You're like, this is not what I thought was going to happen when I was faithful to you. I'll give you one more example. In the Old Testament, uh, Jeremiah, who was a prophet when the Israelites were in, in the promised land, in Jeremiah chapter one, uh, God essentially tells Jeremiah that uh, nations will, will rise and fall at the sound of your voice. What you say, what you prophesy will come into existence. Um, and if you do what you say, and if you, if you tell the people what I tell you to tell them, then you will have, again, the power to destroy and build up and destroy nations, which who would turn that down, right? That sounds awesome. Roman would love that job, okay? Right, that what you say is going to happen. And people, nations are literally going to rise and fall at what you say, that sounds pretty awesome. The problem, however, is that every time uh, Jeremiah speaks, he is either beaten or imprisoned or sometimes thrown naked, bloody in a ditch. And in fact, this is where we find him in Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah is bloodied, naked in a ditch. And then he says this to God. He says this in verse 7. He says, you deceived me, Lord, and I was deceived. You seized me and prevailed. I'm a laughingstock all the time. Everyone ridicules me. For whenever I speak, I cry out, I proclaim violence and destruction, so that the word of the Lord has become my constant disgrace and derision. Right? But every time he speaks, bad things happen to him. Right? He does not assume when God promises him this in Jeremiah chapter 1, that nations will rise and fall at the sound of your voice. He probably does not assume this means that every time he speaks, bad things are going to happen to him. Right? He has connected the dots in a way that God has not promised. And then he's understandably upset. In fact, the book of Jeremiah ends with Israel being taken into exile, uh, of which Jeremiah is in captivity with them. Right? This doesn't go as Jeremiah would have assumed, right? We see John the Baptist, promises of God, assumes it's going to go work out a certain way for him, devastated. Jeremiah, the promises of God, assume it's going to work out a certain way for him, and he's devastated. Now, all that to say, what does this have to do with Exodus? Right? What does this have to do with Moses? Spoiler alert, if we, if we would fast forward to the end of the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the Israelites are right outside the promised land, and guess who doesn't get to go in? Moses. He doesn't get to go in, right? He does all of these amazing and he's faithful in so many ways, even when the Israelites were not, even when they were doing a, a whole host of dumb things and, and Moses interceding for them time and time and time again. Yet he 
doesn't get to enter the promised land, right? Probably assume when he was going to lead Israel, as all of us would, out of Egypt, that he would be the one that gets to go in there. In fact, he probably might have thought that I would be the first one to get to go in there, right? The promises of God, we connect the dots, and they don't play out the way that we would have wanted. And so I say all that to say one of the things that we see throughout Exodus and really throughout all of Scripture is that God's promises do not equal our prosperity. God's promises do not equal our prosperity. This is not to say that sometimes when we are faithful that really great things happen to us. That can happen. But oftentimes God's promises are not about us and how awesome life can be for us. God's promises are helping as many people as possible see his goodness, receive his mercy, see that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And just because we do what God asks us to do, we may be able to experience some cool things, but it does not mean that we're going to be wealthy, rich, and happy. God's promises, being faithful to God, does not uh, automatically equal our prosperity. And then oftentimes you and I get disappointed because we assume that they do. We connect the dots that we're not there, that if God is promising this, then this means life must also go really well for us. And then we get frustrated because we assume something that isn't actually true. And in fact, we don't get the idea that faithful people don't suffer anywhere in Scripture. And I think this is encouraging to us, that faithful people, good people, righteous people suffer in the midst of a fallen and broken world. Now, of course, one day everything will be more than worth it in God's kingdom. But in this life, sometimes being faithful actually makes life more difficult for us. Let me just give you a practical example. If you have kids, or let's say you want to have kids one day, you likely, like I do, want my kids to succeed You want life to go well for them. You want them to reach their full potential. Uh, You want everything to happen for them in a way that makes life relatively simple and smooth. You want them to avoid tragedy and hardships, right? That's what most of us want to do. You probably wouldn't even mind if they were popular and things worked out for them. They had a lot of friends. The problem is that coupled with teaching them to love and follow Jesus Will, will, there will be times when your kid follows Jesus that will go completely against their success, their popularity, their ability to fit in, and even opportunities that come their way. And we can get upset because we assume, well, if my kid loves Jesus, then things are going to work out for them the way that we want them to work out. Well, let me just give you a real, let me just give you a real example. When your kid grows up and they're in middle school and high school and they're talking about sex education and they're hearing things that are contradictory to how God designed sex to work, which is a beautiful and a flourishing and a life-given thing, and they start to say, well, I, I kind of disagree with kind of the ideology here. What do you think is going to happen? We made fun of. They're going to be called things, they're going to be said things about them that might, be not, that might not be true, right? If we want our kids to love Jesus, not that they're going to be perfect, but that, that means that we try not to gossip and, and tear down people, right? Well, in middle school and high school, that's how you fit in, is by making fun of people. And so if your child refrains from that in some way, they won't be as cool or as popular. They just won't. And so following Jesus, again, for your kid, does not equal prosperity. And we can get frustrated when God, with God When we assume that, we can get disappointed. And this is exactly where we leave Moses today. Let me read the last two verses in chapter uh, 5 of Exodus. We leave Moses and the Israelites disappointed. Here's what it says. It says, So Moses went uh, went back to the Lord and asked, Lord, why have you caused trouble for this people? And why did you ever send me? Ever since I went into Pharaoh to speak in your name, He has caused trouble for this people, and you haven't rescued your people at all. 
right, we find Moses understandably frustrated and upset and disappointed, right? He connected the dots in a way that God had not promised, and he is upset. Yet, what's interesting is that we have seen that God has already promised Moses that Pharaoh is not going to listen right away. But he's told Moses that this is going to happen, and yet at the first sign of oppression, Moses forgets. As we often, too, forget when life gets hard for us, we forget the promises of God. And so he is disappointed, he is, dis- is discouraged, and I think even in that we can be encouraged that, again, Scripture is amazingly clear about our condition. Like, that if you were going to start a religion and you were going to have a religious book, a propaganda, if you will, about why you should follow this God, you would not get this. You would not get faithful people suffering, dying, John the Baptist being beheaded, uh, Jeremiah being thrown into captivity. This is not what you would get. But yet we see in Scripture the honest condition of our humanity and the brokenness and the fallenness of our world. And so here's how I want to end this morning. Um, I think sometimes when we read Scripture, particularly like, like for devotions or, you know, you read it throughout the week, uh, we, we approach Scripture assuming that every time we read the Bible, we're supposed to get something out of it, something practical or something to help us with our day. And not to say that that can't happen, but that's not what Scripture, that's not, that's not how Scripture was written. Right? Scripture is not a theology textbook that gives us practical tips to like be a better person. Now, those things can come from it, but Scripture is a story. It's the story of God's redemption of his people. And so when you read a story, sometimes you're confused. Sometimes you you're, don't understand what's happening. Sometimes you're not going to get a lot out of it. And so I want us to leave the text today where the text leaves us, and that is disappointed. And so normally when I finish, I try to give a main idea or a bottom line that encourages us or uh, that encourages us to to love Jesus better or to remind us of God's faithfulness, even in the difficulties of life. But today, I want us to end the same way that Exodus chapter 5 ends. I want us to end disappointed because here's what I know. I know there are many people here in this room today that are disappointed. I know as you sit here, and you think about what's happened in your life, uh, maybe the past couple of years, maybe even this year, you're disappointed that you have tried to be faithful when it comes to, to dating the way that God would have you be faithful, and yet you're still single. Or you've tried to be faithful and honor God, and you really want kids, and you can't get pregnant. Or you have worked really hard to get into the school, and you have really good desires to honor God with your vocation once you graduate, and you're not getting into the college or to the master's program that you want to get into. And you're like, God, I'm being faithful. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do, and you're disappointed. Maybe you've had relationships that have been devastating, uh, maybe with a kid or maybe with a spouse. Maybe you've got a marriage that's falling apart or that has fallen apart, even though you did everything that you could or you did everything that you thought you could do. And you're disappointed, right? I think many of us are disappointed, right? And Scripture meets us in that. And in your disappointment, in your, in your doubts, and you're wondering why God didn't do and move in a certain way that you would expect him to move, here's what we see. The good news of the gospel is that even in our disappointments, the gospel is the, is the objective reality that God loves you. The good news of the gospel of Scripture is not that we have a God that simply says that I love you in the midst of your disappointments, I love you in the midst of your doubts, because empty words are all that is, is empty, that we have a God who actually came into human history and the man named Jesus lived a life that you and I could not live, died the death that we deserve to defeat the powers of sin and darkness and to give everybody grace and forgiveness of God, not because of what we have done, Because of what he has done, this is the good news of the gospel, that God invites us to know him, that God invites us to follow him, 
even in our disappointment, even in our disappointment. And so that's you today. If you're disappointed today for any number of things that have happened in your life, what I want to do as I end today is I want to pray. And in a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And I'm just going to ask you, I will we'll ask you to, to traditional close your, close your eyes and bow your head. I'm going to ask you just to raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to do anything. I'm not going to call you out. But I think sometimes if we can just be honest, even the simple, a simple hand raise can be honest about our disappointment, can free us to rely and to trust in God. And so if you're disappointed today because of how life has happened, how things have happened to you, how things this year have not gone the way that you have expected with you or your family or your spouse or a friend, if you are disappointed, I want to pray for you. I want to pray for you. And if you would say, you know, I think life's going okay for me right now, I would invite you as we pray over those who are experiencing deep disappointment and deep grief, would you join me in praying encouragement and love over those who are disappointed? Let's pray.